0: Well, perhaps you're familiar with the old adage, familiarity brings, breeds contempt. It's the idea that when we're too used to a thing, we tend to disregard or disrespect it. Or maybe you're more familiar with the related idea that y- you don't know what you got till it's gone. In other words, we often fail to appreciate how much we ought to value something until it's taken away from us. It's true of that warm coat or roof over your head. We easily take them for granted until we don't have them. It's true of the beauty around us. People often neglect to visit and appreciate places in their hometown that out-of-town folks will travel a distance to to come and see. I I think every time we travel somewhere in Michigan, we always like, man, we never think about how much there is to see. And every year I'm amazed at the people that will come to Three Oaks to come see all the... The traffic that comes in, everybody comes to see it. And I'm like, man, I've lived here my whole life. I've never even gone to that place. I've never even thought about it. We get familiar. We get used to it. Perhaps it hits home for many of us regarding relationships. When we lose them through death or unresolved conflict, we suddenly can become keenly aware of how petty our differences are. The silly things that divide us. How much we actually lose when that relationship is gone. How many of us wish we had one more day to say, I love you. One more day to get that thing right. You know, I think a similar thing happens to us with Christ's coming and our Christmas celebrations. We get used to talking about it and celebrating it a certain way and, and we get feelings that we're used to when we long for uh, You know I've, you know if you've been around me, you've known it for a while. Christmas is my favorite time of year. I love it. I love the feelings. I love the vibe. I love the Christmas trees and the lights and the 40 degree rain. No, That's not part of it actually. But uh, you know it just feels better even if you hate snow. something about snow on Christmas feels like it's a movie, you know, you know, they ought to make a song about it or something. You, you want to have that nostalgia and that feeling, but I think sometimes the the familiarity with it. We've heard the Christmas story. We've seen the nativity say, scenes, the crèches. We've seen these things so often that we can become sort of immune to it inoculated against the true amazement of it, and it gives us feelings, and and we we love that Christmas magic, but we can lose our sense of wonder and amazement at what God has done. I pray that you'll recapture some of that as we consider the wonder of Christ's incarnation today. With that, I would draw your attention to Luke chapter 2. As we read from this text uh, just slightly before, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 1 is where I am. Luke chapter 2 was last week. Dennis, didn't I just tell you that? (laughs) I just told you that I had the wrong thing and I would get it right, but I didn't get it right. So anyway, Luke chapter 1, just a a little bit before uh, what Todd read for us earlier. We'll be looking at verses 26 to 38 from the Gospel of Luke in the first chapter. In fact, uh, just to remind us that this is God's Word and not just a Christmas story, uh, let's stand out of reverence for God's divinely inspired and authoritative inspired Word. Beginning with verse 26. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee May the Lord add His blessing to the reading of His Word. Father God, as we open Your Word today, we pray that You would fill us with the wonder that rightly accompanies contemplating Your incarnation in the second Person of the Trinity. To to recognize what You have done for us. Not with nostalgia. Not with just warm affection, but with dumbstruck awe. Lord, fill us with that amazement that we might in Your Word see You and be forever changed. We pray this in the name of the One who took on flesh for us, Your Son, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, over the last few weeks, we've Considered the wonders of God's love and as we've looked at, at uh, our four themes, we're in our third week where uh, we lit this candle here to represent the wonder of incarnation. The first week we, we talked about the wonder of creation and, and recognized the core reality that God created all things that he might be glorified by his overflowing love. Last week we considered the core reality that God makes Himself known to display His glory in relationship to us. And in both of these things, as we'll see today and also next week, the real wonder, the real amazement is that God didn't have to do any of this. God is complete and sufficient in Himself. It was not blasphemous and heretical thought that Jesus didn't want heaven without us and so he came down so that God could somehow be improved or made less lonely by having us because we're such a prize we need to let that garbage go God is infinite and infinite in glory We cannot, we cannot allow ourselves to see God as just a baby in a manger that gives us the the warm fuzzies at Christmas time. That's not at all the picture we have in Scripture. A dear friend sent me a a quote from Spurgeon and I I still don't quite know the the context of it, but I'm guessing, purely guessing at at what he meant by it when he said that that when we celebrate Christmas, it's... It's not biblical, it's not a Bible thing we're celebrating, but we're celebrating a, a, a pagan celebration. And I don't know the context in which that was said. But there is something for us to recognize in that the idea of Christmas, that was a, that was a church concoction. That's something that, that, was, that came up later to celebrate Christ, the mass of Christ. And it borrowed from, or it baptized, christened, Christianized pagan uh, holidays to be able to to take some of those things together and find Christian meaning. That's not altogether bad. Some folks will, will bash that and there are some dangers with it, but it's not a bad thing. What we need to recognize is that what we know of Christmas, even in the wonderful things, can easily, if we're not careful, take our attention away from the true wonderment, the amazing nature of God, the God, the Creator God, who chose to make Himself known to us because out of His overflowing love, He desired a relationship with us when we have no right to ever even hope for that. God came and made Himself known. And He actually went so far in His self-revelation to us as to become one of us, to take on flesh so that we can see Him, know Him, handle Him, understand and comprehend Him in a way we never could otherwise. He didn't have to do that. No outside force compelled God to do that. It was all from the overflow of His own heart. Which brings us to our core reality for this week that God displayed his glorious love for his people by becoming one of us God displayed his glorious love for his people by becoming one of us to put it in in the same terms as we saw over the last couple of weeks God took on humanity our creator took on humanity he became like his creation to display his glory in relationship to us, His people. God is glorified in the church. That's what we are here for. And the church is a picture of what Eden was, was meant to be, what we are created for, all of us, every human being ever created with God's image stamped on us. Created for the purpose of of glorifying Him by, to borrow from John Piper, enjoying Him forever. To be in relationship with God, to rejoice and delight in that relationship is for our good, anything else fails to meet the purpose and significance for which we were created and separates us from the source and giver of life and also for His glory. God's glory is manifest in the love of his people, which is a reflection and reciprocation of his love for us. John says in his first letter that we love because he first loved us. And we know what love is because of the way he loved us. There is a wonder in this idea that he completely self-sufficient, self-existent God would care enough to create us. And in creating us, and and being so high above us that we're incapable of comprehending, that that God would choose to make Himself known to us. And would deign to condescend, to use the theological phrasing, to come down, to lower himself, to humble himself, to take on flesh like us. To make himself in in an incomprehensible sense, mortal. The immortal, invisible God becomes mortal and invisible out of overflowing love for us. When we let that sink in, Man, that's more than just Christmas spirit. That is wonderful. That is awe-inspiring, mind-blowing. And if it isn't that for you, keep thinking about it. Because when we let it in, when we allow the Holy Spirit to shape our thinking, to soften and break our hearts so that we see God as He is, not as we want to shape Him to be. We can't help but be overwhelmed with wonder. Okay, so having said that, I do want to point out that I lied to you last week when I told you I was going to explain why all of that reminded me of predicted snow days, school cancellations. And a couple of you pointed that out. Well, what was that about? Well, you said it, but you didn't say anything about it. So the idea of God making himself known to us and us needing to know him and to be known by him in our intimacy, that pretty easily reminded me of a football team and a football offensive line in particular that needed to uh, needs to know one another. You need to know and be known to be able to to do what you were there to do. In the same way, we need to know and be known by God in order for us to live out our purpose. But when we get to the, the passage we looked at in Job, Job 38 to 41, what always strikes me in there is God's somewhat sarcastic. And when I say somewhat, I mean, dang, that's sarcastic. Uh, when, when God says to Job, who are you? <laughs> who do you think you are? Do you know Where I keep the snow? Do you know how much is gonna fall? Do you know all these different things? And he he points to things in creation that to God are they're, they're just little things for him, but they're so far beyond us we can't comprehend it. And all this time later, millennia later, we still think we've got it figured out, right? How many times? Chuckle if you know what I'm talking about, I'll take that as an amen. How many times over the last handful of years have we had school cancellations? on Sunday night because there's a predicted snowstorm coming Monday morning and the snow never comes. We got all this technology, we know all this stuff, and we still don't know. I think God does that on purpose, partly because I think God's got a great sense of humor, but also because we need to stay humble. We need to be reminded that we are not capable on our own of knowing anything let alone knowing the Almighty, Most High God. We need to think like Job did in Job 42. Lord, I I spoke about stuff I didn't know. I I, I heard, but but now I've seen you with my own eyes. And I'm I'm just going to sit down over here and be quiet and let you be God. We need that i think sometimes our view of the incarnation our 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 regular familiarity with it can bring about in us a, a type of contempt a, a disregard because we're so comfortable with it that we make god small in our minds we no longer think like job lord i I have no right to speak. I thought I knew you, but I didn't have any idea. We end up, as God said to Israel, you thought I was altogether like you? Are you kidding me right now? My ways are higher than your ways. And we forget that. And so it becomes easy for us to sit in judgment of God the number of times just this week i've seen social media comments or heard allusions in conversation i haven't had anybody this week not this week say directly these things but has we we have allusions to it that you know if god were as soon as you start with that you're already in a bad place if God were just, if God is really loving, then how can this be? How can this bad thing happen? How can God, whatever, as if we have any position, any standing, any right, or even a, just a minuscule scrap of brain power that would allow us to see things better than God, that we in all of our failings, might have a better sense of moral judgment than Almighty Holy God. What is wrong with us? Well, we know what's wrong with us. It's sin. But our hearts take us in in an earthward, in a manward direction rather than a Godward direction. We still fall for the same junk that Adam and Eve fell for in the garden. God makes Himself known to us. But we get so familiar and so comfortable with God, so used to God that we stop paying attention. And we start listening to other voices. And we can lose our understanding of who He is. And if we don't know who He is, if we don't have a handle on right doctrine, sound teaching, that keeps us in the heart of of the orthodox faith passed on to us by the apostles. If we don't have that, if we don't have that, that depth, those roots, then it's really easy for us to lose our amazement, to lose our sense of wonder at who He is. And to lose the humility that recognizes you're God and I'm not. And I need to sit down and shut up And follow you. God displayed His glorious love for His people by becoming one of us. As we see that passage we just read in in Luke 1, the angel comes to Mary and says, you're going to have a baby. And it's not just going to be any baby. This baby is going to be called the Son of God. Which is actually the whole point. When she says, how is this going to happen? Because I'm a virgin? It's like, uh, yeah, that's the point the Holy Spirit's going to come over you. God will be the father of this child. You will be blessed and all people will be blessed through you because God will become man through you. You are the means that God chooses to use. You know, it's amazing when we think about what happened with Mary. But that's exactly what God does with each of us. God, who ordains the ends, also ordains the means. And so every person that you and I share the gospel with or or have a, a connection with so that they can see Christ displayed in our lives, you are, by God's design, the means through which He reveals Himself to them. The Holy Spirit does the work. He changes the heart. You and I don't have that responsibility or that capacity. However, we are the means that God has ordained. Therefore, we must have the same attitude that Mary had. I'm your servant. May it be for me exactly as you've said. Because what the Lord wants in my life, what the Lord has ordained for me is the means by which He manifests Himself in this world today. Before I get too far uh, afield, I want to come back to, uh, to the text here. As we look at Gabriel coming to Mary, <clears throat> you can see in this very familiar text, she ends up with this response... Uh, after she talks to Elizabeth and, and has this song, this Magnificat, that, uh, where she is praising God with that familiar line, my soul glorifies the Lord, magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has been mindful of the humble state of His servant. All of this is because of the fact that God revealed Himself through the angel to say, here's what I'm doing. What I'm doing is what I said all the way back in the beginning. I am going to come and stomp the the serpent. I'm going to come and be manifest in You so that My people will be delivered. And the only way that that can happen is for God to become flesh. Hopefully we'll see that as we go along. So, uh, Mary responds rightly she has no idea what is what is going on the song Mary did you know there's a lot of stuff she knew in there there's some pretty good memes going around about that by the way Mary knows a lot of stuff what she doesn't know is the full impact of what it will mean for God to become man this is why not just now but throughout Her raising of the God-man. The raising of her Creator. I mean, just wow! That song, Mary, did you know, is, is powerful when we think about what that's actually saying. This is the reason that she ponders these things. She treasures these things. She puts them in the vault of her heart And all you moms know exactly what that's like. When you see these amazing things that your children do, small things that nobody else might care about, but it just touches you in a way that nobody else can really quite grasp. And you store that up in your heart. Mary did that. But that child, (laughs) that child that she delivered would one day deliver her. right, so... As we recognize that God took on humanity to display his glory in relationship to us, he displayed his glorious love for his people by becoming one of us. There are some things we need to recognize. First off, notice this the gospel hinges on the reality that Jesus Christ is eternal God in mortal flesh. I know you got four blanks to fill in there. I'm going to read it again for you. The gospel hinges on the reality that Jesus Christ is eternal God in mortal flesh. In other words, Jesus was God in the beginning, has always been God, has never not been God. But in the incarnation, he added to himself, he took on to himself the form, the essence of a human being. He became man. There's a a somewhat apocryphal story that that, uh, seems to be at least Partially true uh, historically, but we can't really confirm it for sure. Uh, about you know that guy that comes around at Christmas time and sneaks into your house and leaves presents and stuff, you know. Well, there was a real dude. But he was Greek and not, not some Norseman. And his name was Nicholas. You might recognize that name Saint Nicholas. But before he was a saint, he was a saint. Nicholas, I'm sure his friends called him Nick, uh, was, a, was a bishop of Myra, which is in Asia, Asia Minor, which would be Turkey now. So we got a Greek guy who is ministering in Turkey, and he was born under the reign of Diocletian and, and faced persecution by the Roman emperor. That was the the pinnacle of Roman persecution of the church. And he was imprisoned at one point, and then later Constantine comes in, and Christianity is is, uh, made legal and even promoted. And he's released from prison, and he ends up in the ministry. And Nicholas had such a passion for doctrine, for the doctrine of who Christ was, that he couldn't help himself. And he was a part of the Council of Nicaea. And if the legend is true, and I suspect it is because it doesn't feel like something that would have been uh, promoted in hagiography from the time, Nicholas was so consumed with getting the, the, the teaching of who Christ was right that when, uh, when he encountered false teaching, he got kind of worked up. So uh, there was a, a heresy that was really becoming prevalent. It was promoted by a man named Arius. And so Arius uh, was a priest who, who was a you know, really good thinker and speaker, but he got the, the, he got the picture of Christ wrong. And his followers were known as Arians. And the, the heresy that he espoused was called Arianism. Arianism is the heresy that the son of god was created and not divine. Arianism is the heresy that the son was created and not divine. So that god <clears throat> excuse me god the father is divine, god the father is god and the son he's kind of like a god. He he was created by the father, created by god and attained a a deified or a divine status through his obedience he became something more but he was created there was no eternal divine essence of the son and so at the council of Nicaea one of the things that that was central to their debate and and adjusting what we often call the apostles creed and the Nicene creed comes out of this One of the things that was debated is, what is the nature of the Son? Is He begotten? Is He created? Is He God? Is He man? Who is Jesus? And Arius and his followers said, Jesus is just a man. He's he's a good man, He's a good teacher, He's a prophet, all these things. But He's created, not begotten. Well, Nicholas, when he got into this, they were debating it. And that's the nature of these councils, these ecumenical councils, is they would come together and they would debate what does the Scripture actually say? What does it teach? This was before the later councils where you started to have folks that were promoting doctrines that were created, traditions that became the teachings of the church. But in these early ecumenical councils, The the whole focus is, how do we get this right? If the apostles were here for us to ask, what would they say? What do we see in the scriptures? And as they were debating the nature of who God is, Saint Nick, some would say this happened with Arius, some would say uh, one of his followers, Nicholas decked the guy. (laughs) It's like, No, you're going to blaspheme Jesus, you're done. That's my kind of Santa Claus, by the way. I'm I'm all done with that. Santa standing up for the nature of Christ. We're going to promote sound Christology, whatever it takes. And the reason I think it's probably uh, a legitimate story, or at least primarily a legitimate story, is he almost lost his ministry over it. Uh, He was disciplined by the church, and so there's... Uh, That's not the kind of thing that you generally would put into your hagiography. Uh, So anyway, as as, uh, Nicholas stands up for the person of Christ, he's standing on the side of what the Bible teaches clearly. Hopefully we'll see that as we read these texts today. Hopefully you're already getting a glimpse of that and what the angel told Mary. This is more than a baby in a manger. Now we know that. But there are people around us today, there are people, sadly, even within the professing church, who are there are seminaries teaching this, which is just infuriating to me. Teaching the same thing that the Mormons teach, that, that the Jehovah's Witnesses teach, that uh, other, other groups out there teach, that Jesus is not God Himself. he was created he was man and there are lots of folks who will say well you know yeah i believe in jesus he was a good man he's a good teacher if that's the case then the entire faith the entire christian faith falls apart turn if you would to john chapter one if you're still in luke it's the next book John opens with his declaration here that this exposition that that reflects what we see in the book of Genesis even starts with the same words, in the beginning. So in John chapter 1, we read this In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John, different John. He's speaking of John the Baptist here. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. Let me stop here. We'll continue reading, but let me just stop here to point out the difference. John was a man, a prophet, a good teacher. He was not the light. There's a difference here. And John... The evangelist, the revelator here, as he's writing his gospel, wants us to see that. And throughout his book, we will see these claims to deity that Jesus claims very clearly to be God. Anyone who says, if you've read, and I just, I literally just read uh, on Wikipedia of all places, uh, that most Bible scholars say that Jesus never claimed to be God. Hogwash. If you say that, you are not qualified as a Bible scholar because you haven't read the book of John. Everything in here, everything in John's gospel really explicitly says Jesus Christ is God. He does things that only God can do. He claims to be one with the Father, one in essence. He claims, he claims to be Lord of the Sabbath. He does so many things that are only God. And yet, here He is in human form. John wants to make sure that we see the difference. John the Baptist came as a prophet to declare, to prepare us, to point to the light. Jesus actually is the light. Jesus is the word, the logos, present with God, equal with God, himself, very God of very God. How much does he want us to know this? He actually says that in Jesus everything was created. In Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Everything is created by God Himself. John is saying everything is created by Jesus because Jesus is God. This is pretty huge, right? Say Amen if you recognize this is huge, right? Okay, so continuing verse eleven with verse ten. became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This, by the way, is our memory verse for today. We see the Word, the Logos, the eternal God became flesh and He dwelt among us. He actually was one of us. In Christ, we have seen God's glory. The glory of the one and only. The only begotten Son who is Himself uniquely God. He's the one who came from the Father. Full. Completely full of grace and of truth. The gospel hinges on the reality that Jesus Christ is eternal God in mortal flesh. There is no in between. This is uh, this is a powerful reality that we need to recognize. Let me make sure I'm not getting too far ahead of myself here. Jesus, we'll talk about this in a few moments. Jesus had two natures, fully divine, fully God, truly God. And at the same time, truly human. All the way through, not part and part, not, not a little bit of God and a little bit of human, and, and we put it together. I heard Alistair Begg talk about it like a combo meal. It's not that. It's not Happy Meal Jesus, right? We're talking about God taking on the form of a human being. This is the heart of Orthodox Christian teaching. When we get away from that, we are leaving the apostles' teaching. We're going into the understanding of our own limited human minds. The gospel hinges on the reality that Jesus Christ is eternal God in mortal flesh. Notice next, becoming man is the Creator's ultimate revelation of Himself. Becoming man is the Creator's ultimate revelation of Himself. We talked last week about the fact that God makes Himself known to display His glory in relationship to us. Turn to the right from John to the book of Colossians. We'll be only briefly in Colossians, and then we'll jump to Hebrews. So if you need to, you can go there next. We'll be in Hebrews 1. I'll start with the beginning of the paragraph, but we're going to focus in on verse 9. Paul writes to the church at Colossae, So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. Okay, So all of this is how you live, how you think. You need, to, you need to understand that it's more than just I'm going to pray a prayer and, and walk in Christ. And it's not in any way I'm going to earn my way to Christ. I'm going to live out this checklist faith. Instead, it's the transformation of your life. You received Him by God's grace through faith. Now continue to live in Him in that way, being rooted in that grace through faith, and built up in Christ in this same way. Don't let anybody deceive you with worldly thinking and false teachings about who Jesus is that might make sense to your mind but simply aren't true. Instead, he clarifies this in verse 9. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. This is our point. For in Christ... All the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form and you have been given fullness in Christ who is the head over every power and authority. Turn further to the right to the book of Hebrews chapter 1. Starting with verse 1, the writer of Hebrews says, In the past God spoke to our forefathers, speaking to Hebrews, you could guess from the title, right? To the, to the tribes of Israel scattered throughout the nations. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom He made the universe. The Son, verse 3, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being sustaining all things by His powerful Word. After He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty in heaven. Does that sound like just a man? Does that sound like a good teacher? A faithful prophet? Or does that sound like God? Becoming man is the Creator's ultimate revelation of Himself. God created out of the overflow of His love. He made Himself known to us out of the overflow of His love. That His grace might be praised and glorified. And in Christ, in Jesus, we see the ultimate manifestation, the ultimate revelation of who God is. Notice next, Christ was always God, but He was not always human. Christ was always God, but He was not always human. It's important for us to recognize that God exists eternally as Spirit. So in eternity past, the Word was with God and the Word was God. Jesus Christ, before He was called Jesus Christ, was Christ, the Messiah, He was the Son of God, He was the only begotten of the Father, eternally existing with the Father, same in essence, same in glory, but existing in three persons in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. At a point in history, Jesus, who was already God from eternity past, stepped into time and space to take on flesh. And in that moment, added to Himself our humanity without diminishing in any way His deity. He didn't become less God. He didn't trade Godness. He didn't trade deity for humanity. But He took on the form of a man. Turn, if you would, to Philippians chapter 2. If you're still in Hebrews, go back to the left a bit. It's right before Colossians, if you remember where you were there. Again, if you've been with us, it's a pretty familiar passage. Philippians chapter 2. We'll start with verse 5, and, and verse 5 is kind of the springboard for what uh, is going to happen in this Christological hymn uh, that Paul includes here in this letter. He's talking about how we should live here in light of what God has done for us in Christ. And, and, and he says to the Philippian church, look, if if you've received any benefit or joy from this, then make my joy complete by living like Jesus. Right? So that's the springboard for what he's about to say. Verse 5: your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Your mindset. The way you think, the way you view yourself and life and other things, your attitude, your mindset should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to tell us who Jesus is and how he became man. How he who had always been God, but had not always been human, became one of us. Verse 6, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be used to his own advantage, another translation says, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man or in form as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He was always God, but Jesus, for our sake, out of the overflowing love of the heart of God, did not put His Godness, the the deity, the, the glory, He did not cling to that. Jesus set that glory aside. Now He didn't empty Himself of being God. He didn't stop being God. But He emptied Himself of, if you will, the cool parts of being God. He emptied Himself of his divine privilege. He laid aside His glory so that He could condescend, He could come down to be one of us, to take on flesh. He humbled Himself and became obedient to the Father. Incidentally, this is the model, and Paul's going to develop that over the next couple of chapters in Philippians. This is the model for our human submission to authority. This is why we see in marriage two Equal partners with different roles of authority and submission. It's not in any way because a husband is greater than a wife. Somebody say amen. Only a women's voices showed up. But it's not. It has nothing to do with value. Jesus Christ was in his very nature God, he was with God in the beginning. He was Himself God, and yet He humbled Himself to become obedient even to the point of death, humiliating death. He made Himself a servant, but He died a death of a criminal. Mocked. The Creator God mocked and spat upon voluntarily for us. If we're just hung up on The warm feelings we get from a baby in a manger. And we miss what he gave up to put himself in a position of poverty. To be so utterly dependent. The most dependent beings, the most dependent people are the unborn. Totally dependent on the placenta of the mother. Jesus, who sustains all things, put Himself in a position where He was impacted and dependent upon what Mary ate. Man, that ought to blow our minds. He was always God. He always will be God. No part of His eternal, infinite divinity changed. But He humbled Himself. And He submitted to the will of the Father. And He took on our status. And He took on our infirmities. And He took on our limitations so that He could walk in our shoes. Not so that God could understand us. Certainly so that we could understand Him. And so that as one of us, He could take our place. He was always God. And He became human. This is what we call the hypostatic or hypostatic, hoopostatic if you prefer, uh, the hypostatic union and the simple explanation of the hypostatic union is that Christ has two natures in one person. Christ has two natures in one person. He is both deity and humanity. They are unmixed and yet they are inseparable. This is not in any way a diminishment of either his humanity or his deity he isn't less God to be man and he isn't less man to be God he alone uniquely holds these two natures in what we might see as a tension I think a better phrase for it is a mystery that which we cannot yet comprehend so when we when you hear that phrase if you hear anyone talk about the hypostatic or the hypostatic union what we're talking about is the essence of christ two two natures you and i don't have two natures we have a sin nature we have a human nature this is our our essence and in christ that sin nature dies and we still live with the body of sin we still live with the habits and the memories and and all of those types of things but that's not who we are anymore we've been united to him Jesus alone holds the dual nature of being both God and man simultaneously without sacrificing or diminishing either one. He was always God. He was not always human. But notice this, as we saw in Philippians 2, the Son laid aside His glory for the sake of His glory. Now that might seem strange to you you know, that must be a typo, right? The Son laid aside His glory for the sake of His glory. Now, my, my natural tendency, in fact, as I uh, was preparing for this, my my thoughts went to, and I even wrote down, He laid aside His glory for the sake of His people, for the sake of His His love for us. And that's true, but what we see here is Jesus humbled Himself, laid aside that glory. He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, to cling to, uh, you know, I have to have my status. He sacrificed his reputation, his dignity, all the all the incredibly cool parts of being omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, and he limited himself voluntarily by taking on this this enfleshment, by clothing himself in mortality. And we see at the end of that that hymn in. in uh, Philippians 2 that because he did this God has elevated him that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord he laid aside his glory for the sake of his glory but notice also within the Trinity that all would confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father when Jesus came and took on flesh, when He came and died in our place, we read also in in Isaiah 53 and and allusions to that throughout the New Testament that it was the Father's will, it pleased the Father to crush Him. Not because He got some jollies out of it. No, no. Because it glorified God to redeem His people. It glorified God to love unlovable us. The Son laid aside His glory for the sake of His glory. Turn, if you would, to John 17. You remember where John was from before? We'll go a little farther in the book to John 17, often referred to as Christ's high priestly prayer. Right before Jesus is betrayed and goes to the cross, He has this time of prayer with God the Father. We won't read all of it, but we'll read a part of it to get a glimpse here. As we consider that the Son laid aside His glory for the sake of His glory. Starting with verse 1. After Jesus said this, He looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Notice His words here. Glorify Your Son that Your Son may glorify You. Now, hold on. The time has come glorify your son what's about to happen to him Jesus knows because he's been praying with, with sweat that's like great drops of blood this is a huge intensity he's praying in the garden father if there's any other way let this cup pass from me nonetheless not my will but your will he knows what's about to happen to him he's already pointed out that Judas was going to betray him he knows that's what Judas is doing right now When he gets done with this prayer, Judas, the betrayer, and his crew are going to show up to arrest him. He's going to go to the cross to bear our sin. The Father will turn his back on him because he becomes sin for us. And Jesus says, Father, now's the time. Glorify the Son. In laying aside his glory, he's doing it, for the sake of His glory. Let's continue reading. Father, the time has come. Glorify Your Son that Your Son may glorify You. For You granted Him authority over all people that He might have et- that He might give eternal life to all those You have given Him. Now this is eternal life. That they may know You, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself, became a servant, became one of us, died on a cross for us. He says, I've brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. He laid aside his glory for the sake of his glory. And now, verse 5, Father, glorify me in your presence. Notice this with the glory I had with you before the world began. Does that sound like a man to you? Is that a prophet, a good teacher? Or is that God? Jump ahead to verse 24. Father, in them. The Son laid aside his glory for the sake of his glory. Turn to the right to the book of Ephesians, past Romans and the two Corinthian letters, past the book of Galatians. And it's right before where you were in Philippians. Ephesians chapter 1. We'll start with verse 3 and we'll read through verse 6. to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves. Paul develops here in Ephesians 1 our position in Christ. What being in Christ does, we are adopted by God and therefore we have the same legal standing before God as the only begotten Son. And He does all of this. He pours out His lavish love, His amazing grace on us to the praise of His glorious grace. When God shows us grace and mercy, when the Son takes on flesh, when He becomes sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God, it is to God's glory. He laid aside His glory for the sake of His glory. Notice this. Our last point here. The infinite became incarnate in order to redeem us. The infinite became incarnate in order to redeem us. We'll talk about the wonder of redemption next week, so I won't say a lot, but I would like you to take a look at some passages here in Ephesians. Just flip the page back to the left Go to Galatians chapter 4. Specifically, look at verse 4. Galatians 4, verse 4. But when the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. He goes on in verse 6, because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. The Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Because in the fullness of time, when the time was just right, God Sent Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, eternally God, to take on flesh, to be born of a woman, born under the law, so that as one born under the law, he could live out what we have failed to live out, what we cannot live out, the perfect life, a life tempted just as we are, but never sinning. Under the law, Jesus lived according to the law so that He might save us from the curse of the law because of our sin. So that we no longer have to be slaves living under the the governance or the tutelage of the law, but sons and daughters of the living God. Jesus took on flesh. He became incarnate. Enfleshed as the infinite God so that he could redeem us. Turn to the right to Titus chapter two, not a book that we probably look at nearly enough. You get past Thessalonians and Timothy's letters. Go to Titus. When you find chapter two, we'll look at verses eleven to fourteen. Titus two eleven. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Who, notice this in verse 14, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, And to purify for Himself a people that are His very own, eager to do what is good. And He exhorts Titus, these then are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Turn back to Hebrews. It's really easy. It's just a couple of pages. Go to Hebrews chapter 2. Starting with verse 14 of Hebrews 2. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too, Christ too, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus Christ is able to save us from our sins because He alone is God in flesh. The infinite became incarnate in order to redeem us. The infinite and eternal God clothed Himself in morality for the sake of His people and the glory of His name. Alright, so as we wrap this up, how, how does the wonder of the incarnation actually impact my life? Why does this matter? Why is this important? Isn't this just, you know, theological mumbo jumbo that, that folks that sit in offices talk about? No, this is the heart of Christian faith and doctrine. This is the center of our living. If Jesus was just a man, then his words would have no meaningful authority, and his death would have no atoning significance. If, if Jesus were just a man, if he were just a good teacher or a good prophet, then it would be easy for us to say, well, you know, those teachings are outdated. Jesus was shaped by his culture in the first century. He was shaped by the patriarchy or by his Jewish background. And, and, and because of the way he grew up, we don't really need to... to See him as authoritative. If he was just a man, then his teachings would be something we could take or leave. Like anybody else's. We read Plato, maybe you agree, maybe you don't. You see some wisdom there, you use it. You see some, some folly there, you set it aside. There are so many teachers and writers and preachers over the, over the generations who have really good things and really bad things. And so we take the good and we spit out the bad. And If Jesus is just like one of them, we can do the same thing with His teachings. If Jesus is just a man, then His death would have no atoning significance. Why? Because He would have to die for His own sins. He can't die for His sins, paying His penalty, and have anything left over for my sins. You can't die for me. I can't die for you. We can't pay for one another's souls before a holy God. But, Jesus wasn't just a man. He was God in flesh. Therefore, He is able to relate to us, to pay our sins, to walk as we walk, to face every temptation. And not have sin of his own so that he could become for us a substitute. The perfect sacrifice. Now, if Jesus was not a man, then his authority would be valid, but his death could not be. He couldn't be that same sacrifice. To reverse Adam's sin, he could have no sin of his own. But to pay for Adam's sin, he had to be of Adam's race. Otherwise, he's just outside making a declaration. And God could not be God. He could not remain just and just overlook sin. Just say, oh, we're going to give you a pass. No, he had to be one of us to step into our lives, to step into our sinfulness, and yet himself be untouched by it so that he could take on our sin that we might become His righteousness, be credited with the life He lived so that He died for the life that we lived. When we take that cosmic trade, it's only possible because Jesus was both God and man. Because Jesus Christ was and is truly God and truly man, simultaneously human and divine, possessing two natures, unmixed, unaltered, inseparable, He is able to live the life we should have lived. To die the death we should have died. To intercede with us for the Father. Jesus, the Son of God, begotten, not created, is uniquely able to be our substitute, our sacrifice of atonement and our mediator. He is our head and our supreme authority, our righteous judge, and our merciful Redeemer. It is my prayer that as you celebrate this Christmas, and every day of your life going forward, that you would be awestruck by the wonder that the Creator God would make Himself known and deign to condescend to us, veiled in flesh, the Godhead we see. It's a wondrous, marvelous, unbelievable mystery that Jesus took on flesh that He might walk in our shoes and die our death that we might receive His inheritance. Let's pray and then we'll sing together to close. Heavenly Father, we... Thank you. It seems so trite even even to to say it. To say thank you for all that you've done for us. To let your love overflow in creation that, that you might make us in your image. And then to think that we rebelled against you and we threw that away we committed cosmic treason against You. Lord, even now, we we dress it up so many ways. And we think of our sin as little peccadillos that it's no big deal to err as human. And yet, everything in Your Word shows us what David said in Psalm 51, that our sin is against You. Against you, you only, have we sinned. There's no comparison between (laughs) sins against one another and sins against the holy God. Every time we sin against one another, we sin sin against your image bearers, and we are sinning against you. Lord, help us to see our sin not as, as some small thing, but as evil, as wickedness. Break our hearts over it. And Father, as we, as we think of that, remind us of just how wondrous, what a, what a wondrous mystery it is to have a king who would step down from his throne for us. To have a Lord who would abandon his home for us. Lord, it's too much for us to take in. So help us to live in awesome wonder. And Lord, help us in view of your mercy to make our own bodies, our own lives, a living sacrifice for you. Help us to be transformed from within by Your Holy Spirit through the renewing of our minds by Your Holy Word. So that we thank You with our lives. These things we pray in the name of Your Son, Jesus. Amen.